Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Today we're going to be meditating on our mighty God in Esther chapter 6. And we're going to answer the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? But before we begin, be sure to like and subscribe and follow our channel. We'd love to have you along for the ride. God bless you. turns with a vengeance against the God of the Bible that we can easily get discouraged or maybe even frustrated with God because we just can't understand why He is allowing so much evil to prevail in this world. We can end up feeling abandoned by God when He doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we want Him to and according to our timeline. How can we believe in a sovereign God when sometimes He can seem so puny and incapable in the face of evil? And frankly, that's the way we feel sometimes, isn't it? But you know, when that becomes our attitude, that's when it's so easy to think that God is not mighty and able, and it's easy to question whether God is always at work or even working at all. And so as the book of Esther has taught us, God is using men and women to bring about His will. We posted on our WBF Facebook page a wonderful quote uh, the other day that sums all of this up in a wonderful way. God is in control, but He doesn't expect you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You see, God is using us. And so, uh, last week, Esther took humble action, putting her life at risk in an effort to use her shovel for the cause of God. And so, this is why we should take part in our political process, in the life of our community. We should strive to be a good and godly influence on our family and friends, 
We want to be a cause for godly good in a world, but always, always, always in a way that brings honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. But again, when life gets rough, it's easy for us to be tempted to think that we need more than what God has already done for us. And we sang about that today, didn't we? About He has saved us. And about how His name is always blessed, whether the times are are rough or whether they're happy. We can think that we need more than what God has already done for us. And so our faith in Christ by no means takes all the pain of life away. But Christ does provide the proper context for our pain, doesn't it? We live in a lost and broken world where everything is corrupted by sin. Even our best deeds are corrupted by sin. And so we find that we are all in desperate need of our Lord Jesus Christ. But our Bibles tell us that we need nothing else but Christ. For instance, in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. And then in verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, let's read that part again, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise, brothers and sisters. That's a promise. And God always keeps His promises. Psalm 34, 18 backs up this truth in this way. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So when we humble our under the mighty hand of God, that's when we're able to trust God and to bear witness to the power of Jesus Christ as we demonstrate His humility as we saw in chapter 5 and and as we do so with gentleness and respect as Peter elsewhere um, admonishes us to do even when nothing seems to indicate the presence of God. And so as followers of Christ... We trust that God is working in mighty yet mysterious and often hidden ways, even through ordinary people and events. I love the ministry of the late Jerry Bridges. He was with the Navigators, and he wrote an excellent book that I highly recommend. It's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. You need to go and order it or or go to the bookstore and buy it right now and read it. It is a fantastic book. It will grow you in your faith. And in this book, he declares many great truths, but here's one of them. But to to believe in the sovereignty of God when we do not see His direct intervention, when God is, so to speak, working entirely behind the scenes through ordinary circumstances and ordinary actions of people is even more important because that is the way God usually works. Can I hear an amen on that? (laughs) 
So today's message is about that glorious truth that God is always at work, even when we're not aware that He is working behind the scenes. Today we're going to see uh, God's plan begin to prevail at just the right time, even in the moment when it seems like Mordecai and the rest of the Jews are facing inevitable and imminent doom. And so Esther chapter 6 is all about our mighty God, and that's the title of our message. We can easily get hung up on debating all the finer points of this book about the motivations of Esther and Mordecai, and and we can debate the finer points of the symbolisms that are in this story. We can debate all these things until the cows come home and still not reach a definite conclusion. But let's not lose sight of what is very evident in the book of Esther. And that is that we have a mighty God who does great things, even with ordinary flawed people like you and me. Let me say that again. Even with ordinary and flawed people like you and me. And when we get a hold of this truth, our fear can melt away and be replaced with God's peace. We learn this from Paul in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so as our story today in Esther reaches its high point, We get a front row seat to our mighty God in action, and it should give us a tremendous hope that He's doing the same thing in our lives. And so as we watch what God does today in Esther 6, here's a very important question that we've got to answer in every area of our lives, whether it be in politics, our relationships, our family, our finances, our career choices, and so on it goes. What our answer is to this question is going to affect how you and I are able to experience God's peace and how you and I are able to demonstrate the humility and the power and the light of Christ in a very dark world. And this question comes directly from that passage in Romans 8 that Diane read for us a few minutes ago. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so we're going to see God in action in three ways. First, in verses 1 through 5, in insomnia. And then we're going to see God in action in verses 6 through 11 in ignominy and accolades. And then the last two verses, Haman and his wife and wise men realize the God of Israel is at work too. And we see in verses 12 and 13, impending doom. And by the way, we're going to leave verse 14 to the next chapter. That's really what it belongs uh, to. So, Before we jump in to chapter 6, though, allow me to read the last two verses of our passage. And these are verses 12 and 13. These are the key verses today as we consider this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. 
Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so let's take a look first at at how God is at work in the first five verses of Esther chapter 6 in insomnia. King Ahasuerus' insomnia. Verse 1, on that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. In chapter 5, uh, in the first five chapters, excuse me, of, of Esther, we have watched the story develop from trouble in King Ahasuerus's household to a situation of great peril for the Jews because of Haman, the king's new right-hand man. And this is a story that never mentions God, and yet God is who this story is about. And so if you take a look at your handout that that I've given you either through email or there in the pews, you're going to see that verse 1 of chapter 6 is the high point of the story. This is the hinge on which everything in the story turns. And we discover how artfully the book of Esther is written. It's written using a a literary structure called a chiasm, which spell check on your computer always wants to render as a chasm, but it's not a chasm, it's a chiasm. And a chiasm refers to a sequence of elements of a sentence, a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, or even a book. So it can be something that's very small, or it can be something as large as the book of Esther. And then, uh, as, as uh, we reach the high point of the story here in chapter 6, the sequence of events are then repeated and developed, but in reverse order. So things are changing as the story goes on from here. This is an artistic way to retell even real events, so that certain elements of the story are emphasized. So we've got this series of events that happen in Esther. Working up to to chapter 6, verse 1, all strongly suggesting the hand of God. First, we have, so here's the structure, A, B, C, D, and then it goes in reverse, C, B, A. This is kind of like being in English class, I know, but that's okay. Uh, So in A, we have uh, the opening and background in chapter 1. This is when Queen Vashti falls and and, and the, uh, the king kicks her out of the palace. And then B is the king's first decree in chapters 2 and 3. This is the decree about the annihilation of the Jews by Haman. And then C, we see a clash between Haman and Mordecai in chapters 4 and 5. And then we have D, on that night the king could not sleep. And this is where everything starts going back in the other direction. And so in C, we see Mordecai's triumph over Haman in chapters 6 and 7, the king's decree uh, in chapters 8 and 9, and then there's an epilogue in chapter 10 that describes kind of the aftermath of all of these events. And so what this chiasm does in Esther is to emphasize God's behind-the-scenes hand in real events and how He orchestrates the motives of evil people and even wakes up His own people to their identity in God. And He does all of this to save the Jews from destruction. Everything hinges on King Ahasuerus' insomnia in 
verse 1 of chapter 6. This again is the turning point. And so with something as insignificant seeming as not being able to go to sleep, God changes the course of history. Isn't that amazing? That's how mighty our God is. That He can use something so small to change the course of history. And what happens because of King Ahasuerus' insomnia relates directly to what happened back in chapter 2 when Mordecai discovered the plot by the two eunuchs against the king's life and then he warned the king about it. This is back in chapter 2, verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so back to chapter 6. King Ahasuerus doesn't have a TV to watch. I guess the cable was out. He, he doesn't have any games to play on his phone. And so the king has the book of Chronicles read to him. The same book that we heard about in chapter 2. And this has got to be a whole lot better than counting sheep. I mean, this would be like reading the phone book, wouldn't it? This would be some pretty dull stuff. But then the reader comes to the place in the book of memorable deeds where Mordecai had warned the king of the plot. And this part of the chronicle perks up the king's ears. He kind of wakes him up. And the king said in verse 3, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now, this is a serious oversight. This is a serious oversight. Anybody who saves the king's life has got to be recognized and honored in some way. So if you had discovered a plot to murder a public official and and you warned law enforcement, surely you'd be honored in some way for saving his or her life. And if the officials didn't honor you, well, at the very least, you'd have a pretty sour taste in your mouth. And you might not even be motivated to do so again if you heard about another plot. I mean, that's the way human nature goes, isn't it? And so it was very important that the king show his appreciation by honoring Mordecai for what he had done. And so in verse 4, the king asks for a qualified member of the court to advise him on the best way to honor Mordecai. And again, here we see the hand of God. Haman just happens to be in the palace. He just happens to be in the palace at this moment. Can you see God's hand in this? He's there to convince the king to allow him to get rid of the burr in his saddle, Mordecai the Jew. And so you see a conflict about to occur. In verse 6, as Haman stands before the king, uh, the king asks him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, We've already gotten a glimpse into Haman's thoughts about himself, and here they are priceless. You remember how chapter 5 closed with Haman bragging about what a fantastic guy he is. He's the, he's the big man on campus. He's got all the king's power at his disposal. Uh, and, and he also has the, the great honor of inv- inviting him to lunch with the most powerful man in the land. Now, all this is fresh on Haman's mind, of course. And now, we take a look at God in action through ignominy 
and accolades in verses 6 through 11. And by the way, I had to choose the word ignominy so I could have that alliteration thing and make Pastor John proud, right? So, it's, ignominy is simply a $64 word that means a state of dishonor, a state of dishonor. And so, with a big head and dreams of glory, Haman is thinking in verse 6, well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, he's thinking, I deserve to be honored since I am such a fantastic guy, right? That's what he's thinking. And so, Haman is also thinking that here he's got this golden opportunity to answer the king and get what he thinks he really deserves. You know, if your boss had, had asked, ever asked you how to honor you, maybe you'd say something like, well, I want the best parking space assigned to me permanently. Or I want the corner office. And everybody's got to call me sir or ma'am. You know, maybe I want as much vacation as I want. I want to be able to take off whatever I want. And by the way, double my salary. You know, those would be the kinds of things that we would, we would uh, uh, think of, wouldn't it? So this is the same sort of thing that Haman plans for himself. He doesn't need the king's money. He's filthy rich as it is. But what Haman wants, because he's an egotistical, arrogant guy, is he wants honor. So being such a great guy, everybody in Susa, the capital here, everybody in Susa should know that he's a great guy. And so in verses 8 and 9, he wants the king to address him, to dress him in his royal clothes and to mount him on the king's horse and to be led around town by the king's nobles who declare to all who can hear in verse 9, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That's pretty cool. It'll be very clear to everybody then that Haman really is the biggest big shot in the kingdom besides the king himself, of course. And this is exactly what pride is about, isn't it? When we're full of pride ourselves, we begin to think that we're superior to other people and that we deserve things like honor and riches. And this is why God despises pride, because it causes people to think that we are, are good and significant in and of ourselves. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so back to our passage, Haman's ignominy, his state of dishonor comes in verse 10 when the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Wow. Wouldn't you love to have seen the look on Haman's face at that moment? He had to think that he didn't hear the king right. And as it begins to sink in that he has got to obey the king's orders, because if he doesn't, his penalty will be death. As this all sinks in, he must have felt as though the, the whole earth was being pulled out from under him. Everything that he thought about himself, his arrogance over Mordecai, the bad blood between the two because of the long, bitter history between the Jews and the Amalekites. Haman is literally on the cusp of annihilating Mordecai and his Jews. 
But now, suddenly, without warning, out of the blue, like a lightning bolt piercing his very soul, everything in his world is turned upside down. There are many places in the Bible that speak of how those who exalt themselves will be made low and those who are humble will be exalted. And here's one of them in Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And so what's happening now to Haman and Mordecai is a a, a clear example of this truth. Just as Haman is being kicked off the pedestal that he's made for himself, so Mordecai is being honored for his legitimate good deed. He saved the king's life, after all. And it's Haman who becomes humbled as the king's nobleman to lead his arch enemy in honor through the streets of Susa in verse 11, declaring for all to hear, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. How bitter those words must have tasted in Haman's mouth. Not only because he's saying them for Mordecai, but also because King Ahasuerus isn't honoring him. He's the one who deserves this, not not Mordecai. And so God is at work again. We see the invisible hand of God turning the tide against evil at just the right time. God brings the proud Haman to a state of dishonor, of ignominy. And at the same time, He brings honor to Mordecai the Jew. Haman's house of cards has begun to tumble down and our mighty God is putting His power on display. And compared to our mighty God, Haman and all of his supposed power and status is starting to look like a little bug, isn't he? When Mordecai, at the same time, is coming out smelling like roses. And so God has uses, used uh, King Ahasuerus's insomnia to cause this state of dishonor, this ignominy for Haman. And He also uses the king's insomnia to bring honor and accolades for Mordecai. And so now in our final two verses of our passage, Haman and his wife and his wise men realize the power of the God of Israel as well as they sense impending doom in verses 12 and 13. First thing to notice here is where do the two men go after Mordecai is honored publicly? Where do they go? In verse 12, Mordecai returns to the king's gate where he almost always is. He's ready as usual to serve the king, however he can. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. This is the posture of somebody who is devastated and put to shame. What do you do when your boss contradicts or supersedes you? You go home and you cry on your spouse's shoulder, or you call an understanding friend for sympathy, or you just go hide in a quiet room for a while. But instead of finding encouragement among his own wife and friends, Haman finds out that he's most likely doomed. Esther 6, verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to call, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. 
but will surely fall before him. That's what his friends and his wife and his wise men say to him. So you remember how Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites, whom Israel's first king, Saul, had defeated hundreds of years before. But Saul had disobeyed God, and now that disobedience is coming back to haunt the Jews because Saul didn't annihilate the Amalekites at that time. And Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. And Haman is trying to turn the tables on the Jews, first with Mordecai, and then a few months from now, by annihilating all of the Jews of Persia. And yet, Haman and his people are being reminded of the history of the Jews with their God. They're being reminded of how the God of the Jews has this knack for winning. (laughs) This irresistible power to care for his people. And so Haman's wife and his friends see an omen in Haman's ignominy before the king. It's impossible now to murder Mordecai. And they suspect that somehow the God of the Jews is going to prevail over Haman's plan. And in another 24 hours, they will be proved right. Do you see how God works? He uses ordinary people, making one a queen and the other a man of honor in the king's eyes. God's plan was in place even before Haman's was, as God put the right people in the right place at exactly the right time for such a time as this. And in an instant, God uses the king's insomnia to bring about shame and dishonor, ignominy for Haman, and accolades and honor for Mordecai. He causes Haman to realize his impending doom, that he cannot win against the God of the Jews. And so let's return to Paul's question in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who indeed? Paul is speaking, of course, about the certainty of our salvation. But in talking about that, he's also uh, referring to how complete God's care is for us. God's care for us is not just in the distant future. It's here for us in the here and now because of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul asks another question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And again in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So the liberal direction of our country, and I mean that spiritually, destroy us as a people? Absolutely not. These are all rhetorical questions. Intellectually, we know the answers. Just as God is now turning the tables against his enemies in Esther 6 by using ordinary people like you and me, we know that, that in Christ, no one can stand against us. 
And that since God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, we know that God will give us everything we need in this life to serve Him even when life stinks. And we know that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Esther is all about how God saved His people. And in Christ, we have the same confidence that He never leaves us or forsakes us. That, that He is at work in and through us, even when we can't sense His presence. All of this should give us great hope in our times. Whether we're struggling in our families or our finances or in what's happening in the world. We have a sovereign God who does not sit passively in the heavens, but who acts on our behalf in ways we can't even fathom. We can be sure of this. And so what is your answer to this question? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, of course. Nothing can stop God. But is that the truth that you're living right now? As you weather the gathering storm in America, are you full of fear? As you endure hardship personally, are you full of fear that God is not paying attention? Does the way that you live and your attitudes demonstrate the, 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 the truth that God always wins? If you're filled with fear, then my hope and prayer for you is that you can trust God even though life stinks sometimes. And that you can know that God has already won by saving your soul. And that puts all of the chaos in the world in perspective, doesn't it? What else could we possibly need than a God who saves us? And a God who always wins, who always cares for us. And because He never loses, He's a God who gives us the certainty of eternal life with Him. What more could we possibly need? And so may our mighty God grant you his peace as you learn to trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you, Father, that you are so mighty that you can use even insomnia to change the course of history. And so, Father, as we reflect on these things about how faithful you are, about how mighty you are, we trust you. We trust you. We trust you because of your track record for your, quote, knack of winning. Uh, Lord, we trust you because you are our almighty God who does powerful and wonderful things. And we know that we're going to spend eternity with you. And that's the cherry on top. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.